Cross will also be giving some attention to. Uh, in your service outlines, there should be um, also a, a sermon outline, so you can follow along there if you like. Uh, as we prepare to look at God's Word, why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not remained silent, that you have spoken to us in a way that we can comprehend in a word. Uh, we pray that as we hear your word this morning, you may give us ears to hear it rightly, hearts to receive it, and the wills to put it into practice. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, in 1888, the British author Rudyard Kipling wrote one of his best-selling tales of adventure and ambition titled The Man Who Would Be King. I'll run it from here, thanks Warren. The Man Who Would Be King. It's set in Kipling's present day, the 19th century, and it's about these two former British soldiers residing in India who decide to go on an even grander adventure, to find some remote corner of the near world and set themselves up as rulers. The story was made into a film in the 1970s. I'll run it from here. In the 1970s, uh, with uh, Sean Connery um, as the character Dravot and Michael Caine as the character um, Carnahan. And what happens is after a bunch of adventures, Dravot and Carnahan find this remote Afghani people group, Kafirs, and they manage to convince them that they are their rightful rulers. They impress them with their rifles, they impress them with their knowledge. And the Kafirs are so impressed by their apparent power, they not only install them as kings, but they recognize them as gods. Eventually, however, unstuck, kingship going to his head, Dravot attempts to marry one of the Kafir girls so he can set up a bit of a reign. But terrified at the prospect of marrying someone so powerful, during the wedding ceremony, the girl bites Dravot's lip, causing him to bleed. And seeing him bleed, the Kafir priests, they cry out, Aha! He is neither God nor devil, but a man. At which point the Kafir people, scandalized at this revelation, they turn upon the two former soldiers. And Carnahan manages to survive and make his way back to India, but Dravot is made to fall to his death, still wearing his mock crown. It's a great story many ups and downs, but like many great stories, it's not just a great tale, it's a very insightful story, it's very insightful about human nature, about our ambitions and our pretensions and our delusions. Indeed, its title entered the kind of cultural lingo, it's dropped out of usage now, but that phrase, the man who would be king, it referred to someone who set themselves up as an authority figure, but who failed because fundamentally they had no legitimate claim to such an exalted position. And we find a similar question of what we might call power legitimacy arising from the passage before us. The events of John 19 and chapter 18, which weren't read out, what we've come to call Good Friday today, they turn on Jesus' claims to be king. And on the surface, it's the claim to be king of the Jews. But on closer inspection, the royal claim that Jesus embraces, one that John, the author of the gospel, has been building towards, is even greater than that. The king, not just of the Jews, but the king of all, of all people, of all nations, of all things. God himself. 
And of course, the great irony in all of this is that the Jesus we see in chapters 18 and 19 of John's Gospel could not look less king-like if he tried. And I think as readers, we're supposed to see that on some level. We're supposed to think that. We're supposed to see Jesus, in a sense, as the Jewish leaders see him, as Pontius Pilate sees him, beaten, mocked and scorned. In the eyes of Jesus' detractors, his true non-kingly, non-divine weakness is revealed in the painfully human ordinariness of his downfall. In the space of one day, he is easily betrayed, completely abandoned, tried and executed. Some king. What power did he ever really have? For the past decade or so, Forbes magazine uh, has published an annual list of the most powerful people on the planet. They write, there are nearly 7.5 billion humans on planet Earth, but these 75 men and women make the world turn. Forbes' annual ranking of the world's most powerful people identifies one person out of every 100 million whose actions mean the most. And to rank their candidates, Forbes asks questions like, does the candidate have power over lots of people? What are the financial resources controlled by each person? Is the candidate influential in multiple spheres, not just one area? And do the candidates actively use their power? In 2013, historically, Vladimir Putin knocked the then US President Barack Obama from the number one spot. And last year, in 2018, Xi Jinping, the General Secretary of the Communist Party of China, he took the number one spot from Putin for the same reasons. You may remember the reports last year, his powers were vastly expanded. And those questions that Forbes asked to come to this ranking, they're telling, aren't they? About what we as people consider power to be and how it should be exercised, what it should look like. And I think if Forbes were assessing the most powerful people of the first century Palestine, based on the events of John 18 and 19, Jesus would not have the top spot. Jesus would not even make the list. The Jewish religious leaders would. Pontius Pilate would. But not Jesus. Sure, he had a good run. But look at him now. Completely subject to the actions and control and powers of others. Neither God nor devil, but a man. The man who would be king. And maybe that's the view you have of Jesus. You know, the surface level John 18 and 19 view. That for all his positive attributes and contributions, you know, great teacher, compassionate leader, miracle worker, for all those good things, his more grandiose claims fell devastatingly flat. It's an easy view to have on Good Friday when we read Jesus here in these chapters. And I think it's also a bit of an attractive view to us, standing where we stand. It doesn't demand much from us, a man beaten, mocked and bruised. But it isn't the full view. It's not the view you're supposed to end up with. After all, Good Friday is good for a reason. And an otherwise good but powerless man being horribly mistreated and unjustly executed by the powers that be is not that reason. That's not a good enough reason for Good Friday to be Good Friday. No, the reason Good Friday is good is precisely the opposite of that. 
But at his lowest moment, Jesus was in fact on top of everything. That when he looked least king-like was when he was in fact being most king-like. In the events of Good Friday, they force us to confront the question, does the broken man of John 18 and 19 fit your expectations? Not only of a king, but of God, who he is and how he would work. I think these chapters, they operate a bit like a magic eye puzzle. Remember those? They were like all the rage in the 90s. Glance at the events and all you see is the blur of Jesus' powerlessness. But look a bit deeper. See through them, as it were. And Jesus' true identity, his legitimate kingly nature, comes suddenly into focus. It's revealed in his loving willingness to humble himself to humiliation, suffering and death and to do so on behalf of his rebellious subjects. Who else would do that but the God who is compassionate and kind, abounding in steadfast love and mercy? And Jesus' kingship is revealed in the control he ultimately has over everything, everything that happens to him, through the humiliation, the suffering, and the death. He is the one in charge. Who else could do that but the king who created life and sustains everything? And so we're going to look briefly at the four major scenes that unfold in chapters 18 and 19. Look a bit more deeply into them. And as we do that, we see, first of all, that Jesus is the king in charge of betrayal. In his arrest, Jesus is subject to the schemes, dishonesty and force of others, but he's not a helpless victim. He chooses the likeliest place that Judas will look for him. John reminds us in verse 4 that Jesus knows everything that's going to happen to him. And armed with this knowledge, what does he do? Does he avoid arrest? Does he escape? No, we're told he goes out to meet the soldiers. He offers himself up. He lets himself be arrested. Not only that, he doesn't let his disciples be arrested. Jesus is in no bargaining position whatsoever, yet the soldiers listen to him and let the the disciples go. And John tells us in verse 9 that this happened so that words that Jesus had spoken earlier, perhaps up to two years earlier, in John chapter 6, will be fulfilled. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. When Jesus is arrested and his disciples are escaped, he does not lose any of the ones the Father has given him. Judas is not in charge. The soldiers are not in charge. Jesus, the king, is in charge. He's the king in charge of denial. As Jesus goes to his fate with the religious and political authorities, John records further insult added to his injury. The denial of one of his closest supporters, Peter. Three times people connect Peter with Jesus. And each time, Peter denies any such connection. But then in verse 27, when Peter utters his third and final denial, we're told immediately... A rooster crowed. And as readers, we're reminded with Peter that hours earlier, Jesus had predicted this very sequence of events. Back in chapter 13, Peter had declared, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. And what did Jesus say in reply? Will you lay down your life for me? 
I assure you, a rooster will not crow before you have denied me three times. He's the king in charge of denial. He's the king in charge of mistrial. In chapter 19, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate is a, a cruel man. He cares little for the Jewish people. He's mocking Jesus throughout this whole process. Yes, he sees his innocence, but he's mocking him at the same time. Here is the man. Here is your king. He's not unlike his own violent soldiers who dress Jesus up and who beat him up and who say, Hey, O king of the Jews. Pilate doesn't truly believe that Jesus is not only king of the Jews, but king of the whole world. The trial he oversees isn't a trial. It's a mistrial. It's a kangaroo court. And yet, by eventually giving in to the Jewish leaders and sending an obviously innocent man to a Roman cross, a death that involved being nailed to a wooden pole and lifted up from the earth, Pilate confirms Jesus' true authority. Because back in chapter 12, about a week prior to his arrest and trial, Jesus had declared that I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John goes on to explain that Jesus said this to signify the kind of death he was about to die. And sure enough, in chapter 18, as these events unfold, verse 32, John, relating the Jewish leader's request for Jesus to be crucified the Roman way, reminds us they said this so that the words Jesus', Jesus words might be fulfilled, signifying what kind of death he was going to die. That is... This happened so that Jesus would be lifted up, just as he had said, and by doing that would be able to draw all people to himself, all people to himself as God, as he died for their sins. He's the king even in charge of mistrial. And finally, he's the king in charge of dying. Death is one of those things we are aware of, we are very much not in charge of. And it's during his crucifixion that Jesus appears the most helpless, the least in charge of events, isn't it? But in verse 28 of chapter 19, John writes, When Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. Jesus is thirsty. But Jesus doesn't just have a terrible thirst. By asking for and receiving the sour wine drink, Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy, a prediction made centuries earlier in Psalm 69 by King David, which foretold that the true King of Israel, during his act of salvation for all people, would do just this, would have just such an experience, would drink such a wine. Then after his drink, Jesus dies. But consider again how John writes about Jesus' death in verse 30. When Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished. I think I've got to put that up there. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus dies, not with his life taken from him. He gives up his life, just as he said he would a year or so prior when describing himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own authority. 
for four scenes. Four scenes where Jesus looks hopelessly out of control, that other people are in charge, and yet Jesus is in charge. He's in charge of the betrayal. He's in charge of the denial. He's in charge of the mistrial, and he's in charge even of his death. And so the question we are left with is, to what extent is he in charge of us, you and me? These two chapters are not merely the sad story of another man who would be king. And it's not just a story you know, of a martyr, of a good man who came to an unfortunate but ultimately noble end, partly because we know it's not the end. Jesus' resurrection two days later on what we now call Easter Sunday was the ultimate vindication of his claim to be king, showing us once and for all that he is God and reminding us that he was and he is in charge of all things, even life and death. John 18 to 19 is the account of the promised king of the Jews who allowed himself to be betrayed into the hands of sinners here so that he might save the souls of sinners everywhere. It's the account of the divine God king who submitted to the power of some so that he might become the power of salvation for all, for all time, even us living generations later. And in showing us that Jesus was in charge, even in his betrayal, even in his trial, even in death, we're encouraged to remember that if Jesus is in charge, even through these sorts of circumstances, there is nothing that Jesus cannot be in charge of. Good Friday reminds us that Jesus can turn tragedy to triumph. That as God, Jesus and Jesus alone can bring ultimate good from ultimate evil. Finally, John 18 challenges us to consider our own ambitions and pretensions, our own royal delusions and what that means for where we stand with God. The reason that Jesus, the perfect eternal king, had to come and suffer and die was because that those that he had made, his subjects, you and I, had in our lives usurped his authority. What the Bible speaks of as sin. In the end, each one of us is the man who would be king. The one who would be king. Those who set ourselves up as the ultimate authority figure in our lives, but who are doomed to fail fundamentally because we have no legitimate claim to such an exalted position. How could we possibly? We're not God. We're just men. We're just women. We're just human. If there's a creator God who made us and who loves us and who wants us to know him, then any life lived without him as the king is a life lived outside the blessings of his kingdom. The great hope of Good Friday is that Jesus undeservedly went, as it were, outside the kingdom of God, his own kingdom, and suffered the consequences of that, of being cut off from the kingdom of God's blessings, death on a cross, separation from God, in order to bring us undeservedly back into the kingdom to enjoy its blessings, life eternal with our creator God. If you are yet to take hold of that great hope, to lay aside your own crown and come under the rule of Jesus. Please don't hesitate. Unlike Jesus, you are not in control of your death. And you can do that this very morning. 
Easter weekend, Good Friday is as good a time as any to consider where you stand with your Creator. Jesus is the King who is still in charge today. I'm going to pray a prayer, but if that's something you haven't yet done, you can pray along in your heart with me. And God will hear that prayer because of the events of Good Friday and the work of King Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me so that I can be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.